And it's important to remember that we as Christians are committed to loving our neighbors, but that doesn't preclude sometimes being firm and sometimes confronting dishonesty, albeit we do it in an, with an attitude of love. It's also a good time to remind ourselves that unless we love God fully, it's impossible to love others as ourselves. If you don't love God with all your heart, if you're not striving to do that, you're going to end up hating your neighbors, especially if they, if they do this, if they pull these kinds of tactics on. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And today we continue part two of a series on the phrase, term, concept, whole category of things around the phrase, term, woke. Um, this is a part two, and I would say if you're just joining us, it's probably very important that you go back and listen to part one to get the proper context and background to where we're coming from. It's long. Last one's almost 50 minutes long. But it's a phrase that it's a term that Cameron and I neither one really like at all because it doesn't say much. It's morphed in what it's meant in the past, but it's not going away. It's still used. And so we're thinking here about what the term means and then a couple of cautions specifically for Christians as they think about whether or not they want to use the term and how they're tempted to maybe play into some of the same um identity issues that they normally castigate other people for using with that phrase. So it probably will be another long episode here, but it's an important enough of a thing that we need to really dive into it. And, you know, Cameron, I'm conscientious as we do this, you know, the scripture reminding us that we'll mm. be responsible for every word, <laughs> um, careless word that we speak, that the way we mm -hmm. use language really is an important mm -hmm. thing as Christians. And on the other hand, I'm also really, really, aware that there are gross injustices in the world. There are real grievances in the world, and we are not denying any of that. The Lord cares deeply about it. Look at the Bible. I mean, that's a central theme. Um, mm -hmm. However, what we want to talk about here is what you do with your identity in the midst of that. And so don't, as we, as we kind of get off into the weeds here, which I'm sure we will, just because it's standard operating procedure for us, do not hear us leaving out or taking lightly any of the very real grievances or real injustices that are happening in the world at this time. So Cameron, are there other caveats we should put out there or uh, warnings or spoilers as we go into this? Um, take it away. Well, the other scripture that comes to mind for me, Nathan, is also don't be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. And I think mm -hmm. the temptation or the really the the danger here is that often you hear this you hear all of this and it's just so darn overwhelming there's there are, there are so many just ideas and they're complex and convoluted and we name lots of books name lots of names and all of that i think runs the risk of getting very overwhelming so also my my caveat here is we're not saying you need to read every one of these books to understand what's mm, going right. on right yeah we're not saying that you have to now you can and we are we, we've made available and I will do so again in the show notes certain articles that are condensed but nevertheless very clear and very helpful the reason we're addressing this topic is because it's an item of huge concern for many Christians and and they it's because they very much care and because ideas have consequences Mm -hmm. So yeah, just with well, that in mind, some of us are called to read and wade through some of this stuff. Not all of us are. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, well, because I, I could imagine people saying, okay, the conclusions that we reach, people be like, uh, yeah, we figured that out like seven years ago. Welcome to the party, guys. 
but part of what we're doing on thinking right. out loud is going very slowly through the actual arguments and the actual literature and the actual ideas in order to reach a conclusion that you may have already formed um, in your mind. But we feel like it's the intellectually responsible and spiritually honest thing to do is to take every thought captive and try to do it with it the best we can. And so that also means that what we're about to say here isn't said flippantly or just because some talk show host mentioned something somewhere, but because we've actually thought about this for a while. Right. So with that in mind, let me let's by way of review, let's just name the two definitions that we're working with here real quickly, just to for clarity's sake. Okay, so two two definitions of woke that that sort of structure our thinking here. One is the the pretty straightforward neutral definition. Woke just means awareness of injustices, social injustices, awareness of social injustice, injustices. That's definition one. Definition two is the more controversial of the two. The weaponization of grievances. Okay, so let me begin by amplifying that second one. And now in this in this episode, we want to talk about how this actually works as a tactic, as a rhetorical strategy, and how it's often very effective. There are some we're gonna highlight some examples of how this rhetorical strategy works well, and then we're gonna also highlight some examples of people who fight back successfully just to illustrate what's going on here. And many of you experience this in your workplaces. It's, it's not something that is far, re- far removed from the practical realities of life these days. But first, grievances, that word has a little bit of a history here. So at one point, a lot of the various fields in critical theory were pejoratively labeled grievance studies. Now, the reason for that is that these various fields often converge on marginalized figures, marginalized people, or studies of the marginalized. So think about queer studies of various kinds, queer hermeneutics, women's studies, and now, of course, transgender issues, all of that. These were So these are groups claiming to be victims of discrimination, and homosexuality goes in here as well. And, of, and often there is, there is a real history of discrimination. Okay, so we we can we need to acknowledge that. So, but when this turns into a kind of tactic, is what I want to, what we really want to explore here. So, one of the ways in which this plays out, I'm going to actually begin with a with a point as with a point of entry with a story here, and this is a true story, and I'm going to protect the identity of the person here, but this is somebody I know. And I've seen a kind of, I've seen this person on a journey. So this person at first would self, was self-identifying as a Christian, was writing for Christian publications. Slowly, this person began to, I, you know, basically sympathize more and more with progressive ideals and a progressive agenda. But what happened then was the person began to... <laughs> I hate I hate using this this kind of bland terminology of the person. We can call this person Anne. It's not her name, but we'll call her Anne. Anne slowly started to adopt various stances that made her a victim, even though Anne was not a straightforward victim. That is, nothing straightforwardly terrible had happened to her. She had had a normal, even she had had an evangelical upbringing, and her dad was an evangelical conservative. 
Slowly, though, the way she talked about her family became more and more explicit in the sense of naming the naming them, and then it became more and more insulting. And then it became then the language began to change to language of I was I was actively oppressed as a child, not 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 physically hurt or emotionally abused, but act, you know oppressed for, for because I'm more open minded, and so and slowly this person, Anne grew more and more. I mean, basically took full, became a full-fledged progressive, no longer a Christian really at all, as far as I can tell. And now this person, you know, Anne has a family, has children. So, and now she identifies as trans and also has laid claim to a number of other issues that aren't necessarily, I think, that immediately obvious as medical conditions but they're they're all mental issues so okay i'm gonna i'm gonna stop speaking in such hazy terms here what what's interesting to me here is that you see a very clear strategy emerging with with this person she begins as a person who self-identifies as a christian with a family with children and now she is identifying as trans and this gives her a whole new level of authority in her in her area. So she gets in many, many debates. She's on many, she is on many podcasts. She has many volleys back and forth. She's got quite a following on social media. And she's very successful at silencing opponents, not with arguments, not with straightforward arguments. You are wrong because of this. And here's, here's my evidence against you, but because she's able to, again, effectively accuse her opponents of being racist or of being Christian nationalists. This is what she does with her, with her own family or transphobic. I've seen this a number of different times. And on the basis of that, all of her followers go along with her and concede that she's she's the victor in all of this. And so it's become a very effective, powerful rhetorical strategy for her. There's also a really sad side of this for me too, where I look at that and I, and I see a person who has a family. I can't imagine what her children, how this will affect them, her husband. I mean, it's it's such a strange transformation to see happening but so there you see you see that you see the rhetorical strategy but you see also the ways in which this undermines stability and order in a person's life so those are that's one of the one of, one of the dramatic examples i want to give of and this is not far removed from this is this again this is somebody i know where you have you have the use of this this kind of sensibility and it can yield a very effective strategy for silencing opponents. Mm -hmm. But no arguments have actually been made. Yeah, I'll let you yeah, in so, there for So a essentially you find an untouchable category, and then it sounds callous to say, but you, you kind of hide in that. Um, one of the – help me walk through this because I'm going to say something that sounds insensitive, but I'm not trying to do that. I'm really grappling with it, is that let's say you have – somebody who is from a racial minority, um, let's just use that one, who actually is part of a marginalized group. Pick a country mm -hmm. and there's a marginalized people group for their color in that, you know, one of our friends in Africa says that his village is divided by the shade of the different color that you are. You know, so the marginalization of other people based along racial, ethnic, skin color, absolutely true. And there's, and when I was in college, this was part of the debate that my black friends had with the whole sexual identity thing is they would say somebody who's trans 
Mm. It, that's different than being born black. Now, obviously, the trans person is going to say, no, it's not. But I think a whole lot of people would still look at that and say, okay, say you're born white. You aren't de facto part of a marginalized group. How do you become part of a marginalized group if right. the marginalized groups yep. are where the power and the unassailability of having to give valid argumentation for the way you want to structure your life right. is, then you can adopt this. And so there's there's a sense in which, while wanting to be sympathetic to people who have Very s- fair some, yep. some significant um, mental, whatever you want to call it, it does sometimes seem like it's running roughshod over some other really legitimate um, issues at, at hand in our culture. So that's, I, right. I, I feel like there's an internal war within the the whole thing doesn't work mm-hmm. well within itself um in order for something productive to come out of it right well there's some major pressure points here so i don't know if you recall a couple of years ago the massive tensions when somebody who was not born ethnically oh, black yeah. Uh, yeah tried to identify rachel as i forget woman. what her name was it was out in Oregon right. or something so yeah. rachel dolezal yeah okay correct now on the one hand Here's here's what's interesting. What she was doing fits perfectly with our views of identity, culturally speaking. And yet, and yet, people were objecting for for the very reasons you're bringing up, Nathan. So, had did she have to just because she identifies as a black, you know, a black woman? Does that mean that she has experienced what other people, you know, who are black have experienced growing up in this nation? You know, every time a policeman passes them by or something, you know, or pulls them over, rather something. I mean, all of that, you know, all of that is completely cheapened in a sense. Many people would maintain because you're just you're very superficially latching on to this identity. But again, we would say, of course, I mean, this this proves the basic lie that you can be whatever you want to be. (laughs) Obviously, you can't. But the other point, another point. But one more pressure point here real quickly to help you with would be. So Bruce Jenner, for instance, when he when he transitioned, right, there were quite a few people, women who are writing and saying, yeah, just OK. So now you're dressing up and you, you wear pretty dresses and you wear makeup. So pl- plenty of feminists, by the way, were really annoyed by that. They thought, oh, gosh, all these stereotypically female, you know, quote, female in their conception features that we've worked so hard to get rid of are being, you know, now they're being picked up and adopted again. What on earth? Talk about two steps forward, 10 steps back. But then others were saying, you'll never know the actual experience of a woman walking alone, you know, at night through a parking lot or through a park. None of that. I mean, you're just, this is just a cheap identification. So those are just, I'm just, I'm bringing up two, some major points of tension here. And those points of tension have to do with, with reality. Okay. You know. So, well, but also, Nathan, the larger point you're making is really important about people who actually do experience very real, have experienced very real discrimination and have had to work through that and have had to, you know, overcome massive struggles. And those who adopt a victim label as a sort of rhetorical strategy. So, okay, well, all right, let's go farther down the wormhole here. So you have one way in which some of the, the, the adopting an identity around grievances um, does sometimes detract from people who have experienced real grievances. The other side of it is, is there's not a whole lot of phenomenal statistical sure. evidence that it also enriches the life of the person who adopts it. And so, yeah, you will find people and they're, they're out there who say, oh yeah, and now I'm totally content with who I am now that I've adopted this 
identity. Uh, that's that's nice, but that's not the majority. That's not usually how this works out. If you know somebody who sees themselves entirely as a victim. Oh, not at all. The opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's night and day comparison. You know if you know somebody like this. Now, th- this is where I want to get really, really clear for a second. Is you can be part of a, of a group that has, is marginalized, victimized, mocked, made fun of. I, I see, I get and understand all of that. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is making that experience the foundation no, of no, your I- identity and saying this is therefore who I am and therefore the whole world is seen through this lens. That's what is can we say that's where we're what we should well, mean let's go by back the word woke. to our definition here. Yeah. Let's go back to our definition. Yes, grievances are real. We are talking about the weaponization of grievances. We are talking about a cynical tactic. This is why woke is seen as a horrible thing now. This is why woke is no longer a good thing. When people say you're you're you know you're woke or you're part of the woke brigade, when Matthew Iglesias dubbed 2016 the Great Awakening, he didn't mean it in good terms. And that's what it's it's the cynical weaponization of grievances, which is which hurts everybody, by the way, especially not least those who actually have real grievances, those who really are discriminated against, because then it takes the focus off of legitimate discrimination. And it also tends to make people take it less seriously sometimes because it's being mis misused. So let me give you, I want to give another concrete example so that this doesn't all just sound academic. Some of you will know who Roger Scruton is. Nathan, I know we've talked about Roger Scruton before he, Sir Roger Scruton, you know, Roger Scruton was one of the prominent conservatives in great in England but he was also one, he was also a monumental thinker and philosopher. I mean, he will probably he will be remembered as one of the great thinkers. He was a national treasure. And he suffered tremendous mistreatment at the especially at the in his latter years. Now his reputation has been salvaged by a few people who really cared about him and fought hard for him. One of those guys is Douglas Murray. But what happened was he finally Now if you if you're going to be a true classical conservative in England today, you've got to have an iron backbone, right? And he did, and he was okay being a pariah in the eyes of many. But at the end of his life, he was finally brought into politics in a formal way. He was he was involved with housing developments. Because if you knew anything about Roger Scruton, he cared deeply about architecture. This is a subject he returned to again and again. And he railed beautifully and eloquently against the hideousness of modern architecture, you know, brutalism, strip malls, you know, just purely functional buildings that don't have anything even remotely welcoming or hospitable about them. So he was he was going to be involved with, you know, new building projects that were actually dedicated and devoted to beautiful buildings once again. I mean, England at one point had beautiful if you've ever been to Oxford or areas like that, you know that there are they're surviving beautiful build buildings still. But newer ones that have gone up aren't so much. <laughs> but a cynical reporter had him on the had him on a show, interviewed him, asked him some some questions about history, and then misreported the clip. It was later conclusively proved by Douglas Murray actually that that Roger that Roger Scruton had been misrepresented. But a cynical reporter interviewed him, 
brought up some historical questions, completely misrepresented his responses, and then construed him as a colonialist and a racist. And rather than investigate the legitimacy of the claims or anything like that, he was promptly sacked. So he was fired instantly. And I mean, it was later, he was later vindicated, but it was too late. I mean, he had, he died not too long after this, this whole episode. But the point is no arguments were brought up, brought against him anymore or anything like that. This was, this was simply a very cynical and effective rhetorical strategy on the part of a person who was his political opponent and it worked, unfortunately. So I, again, I'm not. I don't want to ring alarmist bells, but I'm again. We talked about this in the last episode. How a lot of people just have an intuitive sense that there's something very wrong with this, and that it can be potentially very dangerous. And this is a big example. I'm, I'm mentioning, you know, a man who is a celebrity, but this is happening in other places as well, in workplaces yeah. and others. This is this is what people call so cancel culture. Let me ask you. Let me ask but, you this yeah. about why why it works that's that's where i'd like to go but there there are funny mm. moments when you see there every once in a while you see it not work so i was at a meeting a couple months ago oh yeah and it was pretty clear what the overall intent of the entire audience was and this lady gets up and she's like well i just feel like we're really you know and i feel and this is just this hurts my feeling you know it hurts me that this is um and the moderator was like thanks for sharing your feelings yep. sit down more or less. I mean, that was basically on to the next thing, you know, and everybody's like, yeah, thank you. Um, and so because she, she hadn't actually given an argument for or against the motion, it was just a so when you when you see it for what it is. It, it seems with it seems kind of obvious of how it's working, but why does it work so well in our time? What's the magic sauce to this? It's a very legitimate question. Well, when you see it for what it is, its power wilts almost instantly. It only has, it, this sounds almost like I'm speaking about some mythic figure. It only has as much power as you give to it. And the, but it really is true. And the, but the problem is, culturally, we have given massive power to this, to this victim mindset that we're talking about. And to, is, is it, yeah. is there a link here? Yeah. Is there like a link? Is there there. a possibility that some of this is a byproduct of living in a time in which we can transmit information faster than knowledge? In the sense that, well, sort of, yes, okay. yeah. Well, this goes back to we didn't talk about this actually in the last episode, and we and we were going to, and we didn't get to it, and it was still fifty minutes. But back to back to a little intellectual history lesson here. The critical theory, which is this is all, these are popular outworkings of critical theory. That's the basis for a lot of this stuff, and also we traced it even further back to the French Revolution, but. A key piece of critical theory is is Marxism. And Marxism construes, it has a very, I mean, even critical theories, theorists have gotten annoyed with the simple binaries of classic Marxism, but it construes everything as, you know, basically the, it's the oppressed versus mm -hmm. oppressors. And in this way of thinking, the oppressed are always the ones with the moral high ground. And we have bought into that, culturally speaking. That message has been disseminated thoroughly through our, through our media, through our popular culture. And so we've talked before how this is, this is an age, it's a uniquely prudish time where you want to be seen as righteous and 
and good. And one way to do that is to is to be seen as a victim. And you, if you are the oppressed, you're in that righteous category. Well, yeah, does it does. Sense? But what's even more fascinating to me is that once you are oppressed, then you're right in every other category. So I'll give you an example here. Um, That's the rhetorical strategy yeah. there. So I was yeah. uh, a couple years ago speaking at Rice University, a student evening fellowship group thing there on faith and science. Great time. There was a young man there who afterward, you know, kind of one-on-one was challenging me. And he said, look, he said, I don't have a dad. I don't have, a, I never had a father. I, don't, I have two mothers. I think you probably disagree with me on that. So you shouldn't be allowed to speak about faith and science at this university because people like me will feel marginalized. Now, what I had to say had nothing to do mm-hmm. with my thought was speaking on faith and science. You're the most unique human I've ever met who, especially since you're a guy and you don't have a Y chromosome. It's amazing. But anyway, the just trying like I, mm. the way that I thought about his biological existence didn't actually have anything to do with my faith. Like that's just how I think biology people come from two people's genes. But, but all that to say, it was set that aside for a minute is that I know right? medieval of archaic, <laughs> um, but there are things like that, that mm. I think, well, let's point something out. Um, I, I believe that one plus one is two. And I don't believe that because I'm a Christian, mm. I have other foundations of knowledge that make me think right. that thing is true. And so I think this is where it gets interesting for Christians. Sometimes they're like, well, Christians are opposed to, you know, they don't believe that somebody can only have two mothers. And you're like, well, actually I think the way genetics works is into, I mean, my Christianity uh, harmonizes with a way of looking at you that. You know what's funny, Nathan? It's not because of that. So I'm wrong in every category. Tell me you what's, know what's funny? funny. Here's what's funny. We've we've actually reached a point, a juncture in culture, where some of us are going to be nostalgic for the new atheists. Well, that's right. And now, well, see, that's why you're finding that these, yeah, these people are are sort of unlikely allies in the sense that wait, that they're saying the same thing. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I mean, we're concerned with the pursuit of truth and knowledge here. And two plus two is yeah is four. And biology is actually a verifiable fact. And so now somebody like. Professor Richard Dawkins finds himself in deep waters with a lot of these people who are, you know, just incensed by his, you know, buffoonish views and all of that. I mean, and I tell you, another person who would have absolutely despised this turn would be Christopher Hitchens. I mean, talk about a guy who, if you told him, well, you can't say this anymore, you shouldn't say this. I mean, he was basically Dave Chappelle, just very <laughs> eloquent. So, but but here's but, but here's the thing, anyway, no, and I, that's why I, Christians, I and that's why I think Christianity in the New Atheist fought it out so hard there, like a decade ago, because they were actually speaking the same intellectual language, just disagreeing on the conclusions, but they were operating within the same framework of understanding. So Correct. they they're yeah. much closer, a knowable yeah, universe. Yeah, so they're much yeah. closer. Than all that to say is that, yeah, and I'm. So to loop this all back around is to say that what you I think what people fear as far as the oh this person is not allowed to speak on X Y Z um, because they hold a something that isn't part of the cultural orthodoxy in this category over here it's the across the board endorsement or rejection of the entirety of somebody's body of work and thinking based off of whether or not they cross a line in one other category now that there there's some legitimacy to that like. Oh, this person has a history as a sex offender. Uh, would you like to have them babysit your children? No, like you can disqualify, like in one act, in one behavior, you can disqualify yourself from a whole lot of mm-hmm. other future yeah. categories. I get that. 
But some of, I think, what makes people a little uneasy now who are interested in free speech or freedom of the press and a number of other things is saying, we're now, we're jumping categories and crossing lines here like we never have before of saying, you know, I don't disagree with that that person's um, theory on, um, I don't appreciate their views on the existence of NASA as a federal program, but I think they're a decent economist. Let's hear what they have to say. We're past that time now. It's like, I don't, I don't agree with you in one category. Everything you say is worthless. Yep. I wasn't actually saying that to you specifically. Yeah, and Cameron, notice that but. this student who came up to you. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. But I mean, notice that the student who came up to you had no arguments whatsoever. Oh, and no reason to bring it up. That is not an argument. Those, those, it, it, that wasn't the topic right. of the so, evening, I mean, and I hadn't said anything about it. That's what's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, talk about a total inability these days for so many people to separate ideas from persons as well. That it's just, that's, a, that's becoming a lost art, but let's talk about, I want to bring in some instances where this, where it, this hasn't worked mm-hmm. <laughs> like the one that you just, you just mentioned, because I think that's, that's going to be encouraging. I have two, I have, I have two in mind here, and these are both prominent examples that happened in the media, but they, I think they can offer us some, just some insights in, in, in how we navigate this trenchant territory. And it's important to remember that we as Christians are committed to loving our neighbors, but that doesn't preclude sometimes being firm and sometimes confronting dishonesty, albeit we do it in, in, with an attitude of love. It's also a good time to remind ourselves that unless we love God fully, it's impossible to love others as ourselves. If you don't love God with all your heart, if you're not striving to do that, you're going to end up hating your neighbors, mm-hmm. especially if they if they do this, if they pull these kinds of tactics on you. That's I mean, the, the culture will paint you into that polemical polemical corner. That's just where we're at right now as a nation. So love is going to be a key ingredient here, but not not in a wishy-washy sense. Just it's important to bear that in mind. All right. So, Nathan, we talked about this one, but there's a great debate. I think, you know, listeners. You're, if, if you're, you're, I think TOL listeners will enjoy this debate. You should watch it. I think it's the Monk Society Canada. In, in, mm-hmm. in Canada. It's a fantastic debate. The question of the debate, yeah, is, is can we trust the mainstream media? And there, it's Malcolm Gladwell and versus Douglas Murray. And then there are two other people there whose names I've forgotten. But that's not important. So just listen Here's what happens in in the course of that debate. I'm going to give you a summary, which is not a spoiler alert. You should still watch it. It's it's very eye opening. Malcolm Gladwell, for many people, I think have many people have seen him as just this fantastic, sure. brilliant intellectual. And he is in many ways. He's quite creative. But this is yeah. this is be prepared to probably have a bit of a diminished view of him as a person after the debate, just because it just the cards the true cards come on on the, t- on the table. But yeah, reconstructionist history. I know a lot of people who like that. I know a lot of people who've read his books. Et cetera, et cetera. So, in the course of the debate, Douglas Murray and the person who's who he's debating with, a former editor of Rolling Stone, who's now a an independent journalist, both of them bring forward at least three. Yeah, yes, that's it. Yes, they bring it. They bring forward at least three or four major, major mistakes made by mainstream media. One on one was the Trump and and the supposed collusion with with Russia. They bring through they bring forward a, another, probably about three more, very prominent examples. Not only of not only did they get these stories wrong, 
but they ran with them for a very, very long time. Other people were questioning the narrative, but these they, these stories were aggressively pushed and they refused to abandon it. So in other words, they have they have four, at least four, really strong pieces of evidence that they bring forward. They're not arguing that you should never read the New York Times or the Washington Post. They're just saying there's a huge trust issue and these publications have lost public trust and they need to do better. Malcolm Gladwell's response to that is, you guys are conspiracy theorists. And to the one guy, he plays the race card five times because the other guy had mentioned in years past, you had a trusted reporter like Walter Cronkite. And Malcolm Gait took that, ran with it and said, oh, yeah, wouldn't you just he'd said things like, wouldn't you just love to go back to the 1950s where nobody had a voice, but, you know, white, you know, white men and over and over again, finally. And they didn't respond to that, didn't respond. To that. And finally, at the last at the very end of the debate, he says, you're going to play the race card of the fifth, a fifth time. Really? And this is just a near, this is just one of those instances where it does not work. The audience aren't aren't convinced because they don't actually have any arguments. They don't have any actual response. Nor was it to the that evidence. the topic of the debate. And so Malcolm Gladwell goes with that. Right, it wasn't had nothing to do with anything, but it was it in this case a sad rhetorical strategy, cynical restore, rhetorical strategy that often can prove effective, but in this case it didn't because you had two people who just weren't willing to bow down to it, and so there are just there are instances where we where we can push back and when you really do see and it loses its power in that moment there's this kind of wilting well but part happens. of it is is because every i'll let you well, I'll let you comment part of there. it is is that every single person who was i'm sure watching the youtube version of that and they're live in the debate would have said if you had asked these other guys were the 1950s great for every group of people in the united states they would have said of course not they didn't even bring up that category as a, of course and not. so right you're exactly you're willfully assuming yep. the worst of somebody else in a category that they aren't even thinking about in order to make a point that doesn't respond to the critique that you yep. received in the first place and um part of part of me so here's like the best read i can put on it and then the more cynical side is to say that some of it is just the uh, is like the nice thing would say there's an inability here to have empathy and think from somebody else's perspective or understand what the argument really is. And these are just mistakes, but that's not true anymore. We've clearly moved past where I just got distracted. I wasn't following your argument. And so I brought something up. So this is a, the, the intentional weaponization as a rhetorical device where you're saying, I recognize that this doesn't have anything to do with anything, but it will right. certainly uh, kick off a firestorm that will distract from the real issue at hand here. And then here's how we win. I don't have an argument, so I'm going to do this. And that, I mean, here's so I'm going. To, here's another one. Maybe you've heard about this one, Nathan. And I'm just talking about the the times where this, where the emptiness of this shows its, where 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 you just see you you could see the hollowness of it. The the trans actor who was in Barbie in the Barbie movie has gone viral recently for saying that you can't portray trans people in, in actors can't just portray trans oh. people on screen. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, cause you, you can't, you can't just portray It's not just a matter of, of studying the role. So that brings up a number of different tensions because after all, what is acting? 
I mean, acting is literally pretending okay, to be so, something so, you're not. Help me out here. But there's another uneasy parallel here between <laughs> yeah, of pretending to be something you're not. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's another one where it's just people are well, not lying. So, it. how about uh, So, why so, is this sentence different? People who aren't astronauts can't play astronauts in film or cowboys or doctors or lawyers or. Um, right. Exactly. Exactly. This is like the very thing everybody is saying. Yep. Okay. So there are plenty of people who I'm saying that the, the, the facade is crumbling in some ways to it, 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 it. On the one hand, it can be very effective strategy, but. The true colors are being are, are showing as well. And there's a, there's an increasing hunger for vigorous debate and there's increasing hunger for the ability to separate ideas from persons and to talk seriously in a mature manner like grown-ups. Now, I don't I mean our cultural scene is in many ways quite grim, but I am seeing more and more of that. And I think so I think there's you're you're seeing you're seeing some some pushback that's gaining okay. some traction here. So let me let well. me just switch everything up here and, and throw a, a wrench in the gears. Um, so the facade. So okay, if the facade of of this you know weaponization of grievance is is fading or crumbling, fine, great. That helps us deal with some issues in a way that we can do something productive with a conversation. I, Somewhat, I right? Mean, not, not totally. Not totally. I don't at see all, it. But, I don't yeah, see it crumbling yeah. as much as I see it being repurposed and adopted by groups that you wouldn't originally have thought of. So let's let's look at a couple of these. If you would say, here's somebody who thinks that the foundation of their legitimacy as a um, presidential candidate, for example, is based off of the way they've been oppressed and misguided and everybody's out to get them. Um, and by all in a lot of metrics, you could say, yes, that is true, that there are candidates that the news goes after unfairly in the legal system and all of that. Again, okay, let's say I, you can't I imagine who you're talking, about, you're talking no. about. But let's say that all of that yeah, is true. The opposite of that is not, therefore, I'm the best presidential candidate. Um, okay, so, so I took my, mm -hmm. I, I shot my shot yep. there on politics. And so, and the, but the reason that one is interesting is because you have people now talking about the woke right, where in the past you would say right. that wokeism yes. was a progressive idea. People are saying, well, now the right has recognized that if you can create the victim narrative around what it means to be marginalized on a more uh, conservative or politically right spectrum, that the same play still works. Take that to another level. So, OK, go ahead. So yeah, sort that one out first. Oh, no, I'm not going to sort that out. I'm just I'm, I was just going to say when you. Yeah. What had its roots in, we traced the, the intellectual history a little bit there. What had its roots in progressivism has now evolved into a really powerful rhetorical strategy that's up for grabs okay. from different people and can be cynically deployed everywhere. So yeah. the political one is just like, ha look at that. That's interesting but, to me. Here's the big yeah. one is I'm blown away by the number of Christians in North America who mm -hmm. see themselves as victims. I mean, look at your grandma's Facebook mm -hmm. feed. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a wild one to me. And this is the one that like gets my hackles up like the politics one, eh, whatever. But the church is not a victim in this way. This, this, is, this is way out of bounds of what's acceptable for any Christian. Um, and so this is where the, the drift into, um, that's not to say that the church doesn't have serious issues, but it is to say that your identity as a Christian is not 
a victim. I mean, you're following a guy who got spiked to a cross Mm -hmm. whose identity wasn't in a complete sham of an unjust trial and the whole political and religious system crashing down his round his head. So this is where I start to get fidgety of saying, whoa, 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 let's be really. So it's one thing to point out things like, oh, that's crazy. People are using the phrase woke and weaponizing, um, you know, all this stuff and grievances and all that. And then, well, have you heard what they're doing to Christians? Um, You know, it's to me, there's, there's a lot of room Mm -hmm. for hypocrisy here. And so that just means there's a lot of room for us to be really, really careful. There is. And we, we can, I think, separate out a legitimate concern for what is happening in America and the decline of our society in general in the West from people who, pull that playbook out and and want to use but that this, goes these right back strategies. to where we started by saying it doesn't mean that there I aren't think, legitimate grievances it's saying what is the most productive way to conceptualize your identity existence and relationships in order to navigate the difficulties mm-hmm. that face you and i'm saying if you're listening to this as a christian and you're looking at the failure of this ideology to produce good fruit in the lives of the people who are leaning on it for salvation then don't turn around and adopt mm-hmm. it for yourselves. That's all I'm saying. And it maybe nobody else knows anybody like this, but you I'm know, just putting that out there as us, a thought experiment for you. Well, what let let me just say it like this. What what united us with the new atheists and now makes us sort of strange bedfellows? It was a passionate pursuit of the truth. And what has changed with some of the cynical stuff that we're talking about? Well, there's no concern with what we're talking, with what Nathan and I are talking about when it comes to the cynical deployment of, of grievances. There's no concern for the truth there. The concern is for mm, winning. Mm-hmm. If you're, so, and I think that's a key distinction that we have to make. And I, now I know I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to winning in the sense that, you know, I, you know, I like truth to win. Should of prevail. Course. I'm I'm on board I, with that. I think I, I've been very truth, but I'm 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 also of the persuasion that Christianity is good for society. That it has that I mean Western values are nourished by the Christian heritage. I'm also of the view tear that Christian heritage up, and you are going to see seeds of such destruction. So I think it's worth yeah. Fighting but all, for that. all I'm that. saying is totally. you don't you don't but my commitment winning by whining seems like a failure to me it no it does and and also but you you don't sacrifice sacrifice your christian conscience and convictions for a short-term victory that's that's and see that's the because we i mean we are called to follow christ above all does that is that a recipe for political quietism by no means does that mean you're a pushover pushover absolutely not it doesn't mean any of that but it means you can't be bought yeah you know, I mean, I liked Os Guinness's book, Impossible People, okay. was about that. You're, you're, the, and this was a designation given to Christians at one point. Oh, they're just impossible people. You can't put them in a club. You can't, you can't stick them in this category. They're, they're allegiance. You, you kill them. That's supposed to be the ultimate sign of victory of the state over Christians. No, they turn that into the honor of martyrdom. They subvert even torture and murder. These people are impossible people. So I'm not saying run headfirst into a torture chamber, of course, but I'm saying we need to recognize our our fundamental allegiance to Christ as our king. And that's always going to put you at odds with the current political order. 
And that's part of you, of what it means to be a responsible citizen of Earth and a responsible citizen of he- heaven. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting here. You're, you're using the phrase, like, these people can't be bought, which if you th- throw the biblical language of that in there, it's like, you are not your own. You are bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. And so the the unbuyability of the Christian mm-hmm. is because your identity is already owned by something that isn't you, or someone, I should say, that isn't you. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you're operating from a platform where your identity is not constructed by the culture around you. It's not based off of the terrible things that have happened to you. Even if they're legitimate, those will influence your life for sure, but it isn't the core of who you are. So in all of this, it does come back around in a way to say that one of the things that I think we're pursuing that the church can be helpful with is the gift of helping people see the gift that it is to have your identity in Christ as the foundational starting point for who you are. And so I know it sounded like I was getting a little hyper at the end there, but I, I feel like when the church is using that imagery or language or that technique, there, there's a sense in which you're denying or you don't understand where your identity actually comes from and how stable it is, even if the world around yeah. you hates you. And so um, don't, that's, that's such a precious thing that we have to be a little bit animated about anything that looks like a threat to dissolve that certainty and confidence that we have. I mean, so what are your fundamental coordinates here? Who are you? You are a child of God, a son, a daughter of the king. That's who you are. Your citizenship, you are a heavenly citizen. You love because he first loved you. Yeah. It is Christ's love that liberates you to love others, even people who are really obnoxious and who do cynically play the victim card, thus hurting real victims in the process and trying to destroy free speech, destroy arguments. And do lots of damage in our culture, even even those folks. Well, some of so some of it, recognizing that that this yeah. Well, I was just going to say some of it has to do with like let's glance at history here quickly, where the vast majority of Christians in history have not been surprised by, but have assumed that the government would be unjust toward them, who have assumed that when Jesus said they hated me, they'll hate you too. Mm-hmm. That that's that being marginalized is the default position for historic Christianity, but it was never the identity of Christianity during that time. So we're, we're at a bit of an odd bubble here in North American culture where Christianity really has had a significant amount of uh, cultural, powerful influence. Um, but let's recognize that if that is lost, the church doesn't disappear, and we don't adopt the, the category of victims here while recognizing real injustices where they may lie. So zooming out here a little bit, I think is just a phenomenal, helpful yep thing to help you sleep better at night if you're worried about these things yeah and we can't i can't sum this up with sound bites but i'm going to give you a few sound bites that i think might be somewhat helpful here to bring this to a conclusion i know some of this stuff is is alarming and it's not necessarily very encouraging but remember we meet the world on christ's terms not on the culture's terms culture's terms are wrong we meet the world on christ's terms and also because if your identity is in jesus you belong to him and you love because he first loved you, you are freed to pursue the truth. Not cynically look to just win, you know, and, you know, employ cultural strategies, but pursue the truth. It frees you to do that. So, yeah, more can be said on this. It's a subject to which, of course, we can, we can return, but we hope this has been helpful to you and in, in, Maybe, you know, giving you some some history behind this, giving you some categories to work with, also seeing how some of this stuff actually works 
and then seeing also, we hope by God's grace, ways to creatively meet the challenges and move, move beyond the morass in which we find ourselves. But you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, the podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.